That's Chris. And that's Jacob. And, and welcome, welcome to, to Bruise with Bruise. This is a certified organic steam ale. It's the product of an all-natural brewing process that incorporates cool fermentation and a hit of wheat malt. Wait, how, the how, result, do, they, how do they do the hit? Uh, it's because I got stuck in reading it. I was running out of breath, so I had to use the hit to take a breath. The result is a crisp palate cleansing ale and then all caps thanks for supporting the good beer movement my biggest issue is i don't know if this actually cleanses palates because i didn't have anything to eat before or drink before drinking it so i'm not <laughs> cleansing a palate no so I'm, I'm a little i'm a little put off by that because i felt like potentially they might be misleading us with a palate cleansing as a selling point no i never feel that ale or beer is palate cleansing it always leaves me with a a mucusy sensation, but that it's, might just it's be. It's also me. important to note that it's brewed off-site under the close watch of goats. Mm. I am like does, it does say that on the bottle. That's actually horrifying. Like, are goats to be trusted with the the fermentation process? I'm not sure. I do like their logo. Hang on, it literally says mountain goat beer. Yep. This isn't goat. This isn't beer for people. It's for <laughs> goats. <laughs> Made by goats for goats. For goats. <laughs> <laughs> All right, welcome to Brews with Brews, guys. We are here, Death Starring. Pierre Medeiros. Thank you for having me. Well, it's good to have you. Thank you. Thank you. I'm very excited. You should be. We're, we're all equally excited to have you here. So, uh, Jacob, do you want to tell our dear sweet listeners about this idiot Pierre, please? Uh, I have not got a whole lot that I can say about this man. I've known him for a while. I've played games with him for what almost feels like longer than the period of time together. But I, I'd love to hand over to him for him to introduce himself. Please hit us, Pierre. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, so... Um... I started playing X-Wing fairly recently, like we all did, um, based mainly off seeing the movie. It got me very excited because uh, Poe Dameron, very cool. Yeah. Um, and yeah, just generally love the look of this reimagined Star Wars. Um, but yeah, so I initially got into it wanting it to just be like a nice casual little thing. And I started off playing Rebels. And since then, it's still... Fairly casual, but um, I think I'm owning, what, getting close to in the 20s number of ships and I'm playing Rebels and Imperials. Um, in terms of what I play weekly, it tends to be a Rebel list that I'll be wanting to work on and an Imperial list. I stray, I stay away from Scum because uh, they don't really give me much that um, I find appealing. More than reasonable. I share the same view. Uh, you're all, you're all jerks. Scum are great. Screw you. <laughs> all right. Um, yeah. So Pierre, you, like you said, playing, uh, rebels and Imperials lately. So having played against you many a time recently, I, uh, seems to notice you have somewhat of an obsession with Miranda. Do you want to, do you want to comment on that? It seems beyond healthy. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Like I like Miranda. I won't lie. I'm one of those weird gamers who tends to gravitate towards, um, female characters. This is weird. I realize because, 
by and large, all the cards you get, at least in the base sets, are pictures of the ships rather than pictures of the people flying said ships. But no, um, Miranda's mechanics as a whole I really like. Um, I enjoy ships with ways of being both offensive and defensive, and Miranda's ability to either drop a shield to roll an extra attack dice or the opposite, um, drop an attack dice to recover a shield, I find very interesting and rewarding. And what's your, your regular Miranda build? If we were to, to set up across from you on the table, what sort of Miranda are you flying? Cool. So I um, bounce backwards and forwards a little bit. The one thing I have to take with Miranda is, spoiler alert, TLT, obviously. Now, it's a bit weird. Well, not weird. It's, it's an established thing to take. But I do very much like the way the K-Wings having a natural 360-degree arc means you don't really have a donut hole for your opponent to get into. I like to um, quite often in early rounds throw a target lock on the ace, which is going to be an issue for me later on. And when they eventually penetrate into the range one of Miranda, you can drop a shield and let them have four dice in the face and hopefully they die. I have been on the receiving end of that many a time. <laughs> um, but it's not just that. Usually you run a, a pretty balanced list, not just relying on the like the triple K list, but going for a few Z95s, maybe a a crutch in Poe Dameron, to, to quote a certain outspoken rebel player who's sitting next to me. Uh, yeah, yeah. I did notice my win rate was rather high while I was flying Poe Dameron, and um, since I have started exploring other areas, it has definitely gone down. But no, still really enjoying running Miranda. I have real trouble getting away from running less than two Z95s in my list, but lists. But yeah, typically it's Miranda with TLT, three Z95s, and then a little bit of something else, whether it be a Y-Wing with TLT or a T70, like Blue Ace, is what I'm currently flying there and really enjoying him. Uh, so that that particular Blue Ace you fly, is there, is there anything particularly spicy about that, that build? Are you, do you ever feel like you're held back by the fact that he doesn't, for some reason, have an EPT slot? <laughs> Um, most definitely, I think the lack of an EPT slot hurts his, his strength, if you will. But that being said, I think his ability to boost in a fashion that no other ship can boost in, like a one hard, is really interesting. And um, with the way that I run him as kind of like a mid-game piece, he, he functions fairly well. Awesome. Yeah, I'm actually a big fan of, uh, of Red Ace over Blue Ace. Like, as much as I love movement shenanigans, but... um. That ridiculous grindy ability Red Ace has. To, yeah, the the evade token the yeah, first the, time you the, lose the first a shield. Time you lose the shield, you get an evade token. So if you have that, you lose the shield, you get an evade token. The next time you get shot, you take one less damage essentially. And then you chuck on a regenerating astromech and it's great. The 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 absolute greatest thing in the world is when you, you put down your, your red ace with a com relay Ooh. and R two D two. And uh, on the very first turn you uh execute that green maneuver straight over an asteroid much to your opponent's surprise and you knock that shield right off hopefully and get your free evade token to hold on to for the game awesome <laughs> all right so uh, a few things came up last episode that have uh, changed a little bit in the last week or so with some things we found out so one of those things is that really sweet new take on the palp aces list where we had palpatine with uh, inquisitor wampa and omega so, uh, Jacob, did you want to fill us in on what's happened with that, please? Uh, yeah, I, I was quite high on that list the last time we all spoke. And uh, I, I've put it to the table about a half a dozen times over the last fortnight. And uh, haven't had too much success with it. Uh, 
some some early great games where I got to really show Brobots what's for with it. Uh, followed up by some embarrassing losses to some swarm lists and some rebel lists, and I'm I'm leaning more towards cold on the list than where I was before. Uh, I think that might put you in opposition with a fairly well-established player being Paul Heaver, who uh, took that to a recent store championship in the States, I understand, though. Uh, yeah, there was uh, some, some videos that came out just after we, we recorded the last cast with Paul Heaver playing the exact same Palp 3 ace list. Wampa's not really an ace. Can't, can't give him that title after playing with him. Uh, and I believe he had some success with it. So maybe I just play it poorly. Why? Um, what made you so excited about it initially when you saw that list? Uh, I really like a few different pieces. So I'll, I'll, I'll try and break it down and make it sort of coherent. Uh, first of all, Wampa with the cancelling a crit to deal a face down damage card, Christopher, uh, is, is really cool because it's one of those situations where you get to abuse a lower pilot skill because normally what happens is you want to save your Palpatine die changes for the defense dice of your aces so they survive. Wampa typically shoots after the things that are preying on your aces. So if you have a palp dice modification left, you're free to just toss out a crit there, cancel it, and get the damage card out, which is really synergistic. And it's one of those things you don't really consider because you normally look at low pilot skill as a, a downside. Yeah, it helps pay you back for not spending your palp too early if you don't have to, essentially, right? Uh, yeah, it adds another layer to the decision-making mm. that makes ace lists more interesting than other lists, in my opinion. The other thing that's cool about the list is you get to fly a whole bunch of really cheap ships that feel like they generate a lot more value. So Omega Leader, when you're flying him on the table and he is just killing stuff because they can't modify dice, is really awesome. And you forget that he costs 26 points, which is very, very cheap. Yeah, I've, I've got like a massive hate on for for Omega Leader after facing him a whole bunch of times in the last few weeks here. That Duke is a killer. It really is. Like, if you get down to just one or two ships left on the board, Omega Leader is going to clean up a ship that is worth a significant fraction of points more than him. Yeah. The other thing that was cool about the list, and the reason why I was really excited is because I hadn't really had a chance to play with the Inquisitor yet. This seemed like a really great shell to try it out in. And the games that I've gotten the Inquisitor to, to sort of work at the, you know, staying at range three, hunting other ships, really satisfying. But once again, sort of hampered by the fact that Imperial ships have, like, no help. So, two shields and two hull is not a sturdy ship by any stretch of the imagination. And as soon as someone turns any amount of firepower onto it, it just crumbles. Fair enough. So, uh, so that's put you a bit down on, on that version of the, the Palp Aces list now. Uh, are, you, are you heading back to the two ace list? I, I have recently put to the table a couple of different sort of two ace pairings. So... Uh, Earlier today, in fact, I got to try out the, the classic Vader Suntia Palpmobile, and just as good as I remember it, it was really sweet. I got a like a crushing defeat on my opponent earlier. Wow, Jesus. All right, let's not talk about that one. It was Chris. Um, <laughs> Fuck. But Chris, what, how, how have you been over the last fortnight with your uh, things you set out to do last episode? Uh, yeah, so out of all of those lists I brought up, last week and was like oh i'm gonna change all these things and do all of this the uh the biggest change i made was to pretty much throw a whole bunch of scum archetypes in the bin yeah i did notice that you've been through many a list over the last uh fair few games yeah yeah i've been uh been really deep in the brew tank i uh did go back to an old classic i went back and i have to apologize i played brobots about six or eight games in a row and uh they're they're doing it for me now i, I gotta admit 
How, so, so do you have to sort of recant some of your previous statements? I, I wouldn't say recant. I, I'm revising and updating my opinions. Fair enough. That is but, a, a true scientific approach. Yeah, but oh man, I gotta say it is super satisfying having boost on a large base ship. That is one hell of a feeling. Now you see why I take engine upgrade on all my large ships, don't you, Chris? Yeah, like, but that being said, it's nothing new having boost on large base ships in that this is a tactic we see a lot, engine upgrade allowing pretty much any large base ship to get a boost. So why are you so excited about it based off Brobots? Um, I just, I feel like it gives so much to that list because Brobots have got this really nice package of little synergistic elements where they play together nicely. If you spend your action on, on engine upgrades, you still have your glitter stems, you still have your gunners, you have all of these these crazy things for... I think you mean spending your action oh, on boosting. Boost. Indeed. <laughs> um, but yeah, even if you, you spend your action to boost up into short range, you have all of these other elements that don't take actions. You have your, your natural second shot from IG-88B. You can get an evade off that boost from IG-88C. Do you want to just quickly, before we go too much further, explain your particular robots list you've been playing so that people know what we're talking about? Yep, sure. So, so the version I was running was... So two robots were B and C. Uh, so B means that if you miss your first shot, you get another shot with a cannon. So to take advantage of that, you equip both of your brobots with a heavy laser cannon for four attack dice. Uh, the other brobot is you take C. So C means that any time you take a boost, you get to take a free evade action, which again, just lends so much more to their survivability because they're a big ship, but they've got three evade dice, which is super satisfying. Uh, then the rest of the rest of the kit out, they took glitter stims. They took the uh, fire control systems and I'm completely skipping on oh they took crack shots of course I think you're missing one very important upgrade seen by many an arc dodger indeed which is auto thrusters which again means that if you sit back at range 3 you can get 4 dice against your opponents from heavy laser cannons they don't get the long range bonus because you're using a secondary you can crack shot away their uh, crack shot away their evade rolls and if you still miss you get to do it all over again with IG-88B can you talk a little bit more on the crack shot on the IG-88s? Because me personally, like, I've never played robots. I've flew against, I've flown against them one or two times. And in my mind, I look at robots and I see these two, like, hyper souped-up units. And coming from someone who plays uh, a pseudo-tie swarm or tie swarms, when I think of crack shot, I think of it as something you want to take lots of. And when you've got some essentially two aces in your list, which is the IG-88s, looking at crack shot on it seems like such a small effect. Like you only get two crack shots per um, robot list. So why are you so um, enamored of the crack shot on the robots? Yeah, um, I think it's a bit of a misnomer to say that the, the robot list is a two ace list because they don't really fly like aces in the way that like a, a Vader Sunta list flies. They're more like two brawlers. They're, they're not trying to dance around the edges. What they want to do is get up in your face, unload a ton of dice, and try to take down your ships really quickly. Um, and I think crack shot is a huge advantage in that sense because quite often you'll find yourself, you, you throw out four dice, and if you can just cancel off that, that one evade they rolled, they're going down. Yeah, uh, off what you're saying there, I'm getting the sense that robots are weirdly an early game kind of build. Am I right in that assumption? Like, that's the way I feel. Like, the longer the game goes on, the more firepower they're going to cop. I think one of the key things with Brobots, and one of the reasons that Crackshot sees play on them specifically, is Brobots are a list that's good against a whole bunch of things and has a couple of really critical weaknesses. 
And so you really want to use those crack shots to identify, firstly, identify what the threat is in your opponent's list. You then want to bring all your guns to bear. And the crack shots are there just to guarantee that you take that one element off the table. Because it's not that robots suffer in a long game, it's that they suffer to very specific enemy components. For example, stressing robots is a huge sort of negative because they have this lots of actions they want to take. They have like really good red maneuvers. Like they have, I believe, a 4K turn and they have S loops as well. well. Yep. Really, really great dial and stuff. And if you can sort of double stress them with like a stress hog or, you know, any number of other of these like sort of stress lists that are popular, you're shutting that down. And so the idea is you can crack shot combination usually with glitter stim and you can in like one of those early turn two or three engagements take out that one thing you can't deal with. Yep. Yeah, the, the other thing that quite often comes up is people just underestimate how far you can move off a, a three straight followed by a straight boost on a large base ship. Yeah, you got when in the game we played a little while ago, um, my Tice Swarm versus your Brobots, you definitely got the, me there because I just moved forward two on the first turn thinking that I'd be at this lovely like one to two ship lengths out of your range three, but turned out it wasn't. Yeah, exactly. So quite often if you just move straight up boost forward because you've got a large base that's a huge jump it's like seven it's essentially like a seven straight right yeah it's crazy so you do that and if they've strayed a little bit too far forward with their howl runner their omega leader their sunter their whatever and you go uh, i'm gonna pop both my glitter stims on turn one and take a range three shot with my uh eight dice worth of heavy laser cannons and if i miss i get to do it all over again yeah, it's pretty good. You're not going to miss, though, when you pop on those glitter stims. You, you never miss. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, it's super satisfying. Being able to snipe out, you know, a 20 or 30-point important component of their list on turn one before it does anything can, like, really swing that early game in your favour and make your, uh, make your late game a lot easier. I think that's sometimes an important thing that's sort of missed by some of the uh, newer to intermediate players, as well as you look at something like a, a one-use-only upgrade that takes up a slot on your ship say crack shot or glitter stim and you're kind of like uh you're a bit hesitant to take it because you want to use that slot for something that's going to continually generate you value but in that situation you just described you're talking about using uh, i can't remember exactly how many points glitter stim is is it uh, two I points i want to say two but two points like let's say it's six points if you pop glitter stim and crack shot off both of your robots on turn one or two and take out a 30 point ship that seems like a really good exchange that sometimes isn't clear when you're in that early stages of learning list building and matchups and stuff because you want to try and get as much out of your, your upgrade slots and your points as you can. And one use only seems to sort of preclude that idea. Yeah, yeah. Like sometimes it feels bad when you say to yourself, oh, I, I might really want this crack shot in the late game to, to kill off that Sunterfell or to kill off Whisper, whatever, whatever that you know really evasive threat is that you want to take down. But I mean, if it gives you a chance to slip in a really good crit or to just put them out of the game straight away, take it. I mean, there's nothing worse than having your robot die and still have their glitter stim and crack shot unused. That, that is 100% correct. Yeah, absolutely. So that seems seems to me like you uh, didn't stick to your resolutions from last episode, but you found a whole bunch of other new things. And so you're, you're, you're not unhappy with how you've been going over the last couple of weeks? Uh, no, I feel like my, my flying's actually really gone ahead a lot in the last probably two or three weeks. Like I've, I reckon between us, we've probably flown about... 20 games in the last week and a half or two weeks yeah something like that i've noticed that you're 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 almost at a 50 percent win rate against me i'm not even gonna fucking comment <laughs> so uh let's quickly change the topic and talk a little bit about what's been happening over at the hop open uh yeah we just recently i don't know when this podcast came out but recently for the time of recording we've just had the first of the uh x-wing open series tournaments over in america so this is a sort of a new circuit that ffg is putting on 
big sort of events, really cool prizes up for grabs, you know, just like another way that you can experience tournament play for X-Wing. So the there were a few interesting things about this particular event. Uh, firstly, it's the first sort of really big Wave 8 legal tournament. So we got to see a whole bunch of brand new ships sort of on display. Yeah. So, uh, so the Wave 8 ships, for those of you who maybe haven't been keeping up, have uh, made a bit of a splash because we got out of that wave. We got the Jumpmaster, we got the Inquisitor's Tie, we got the Ghost, and we also got the Mist Hunter. Don't forget the Ghost comes with an attack shuttle as well, Chris. I certainly will not. Not now that you've brought it up incredibly publicly, thank you. That's all right, Chris. That's all right. Uh, the other important thing about this particular event is it's the first time that the new intentional drawing rules were in effect for uh, for X-Wing, which has caused a bit of uh, a bit of a stir in the community. Had that been, uh, I assume this, it was known that this would be introduced ahead of time for this first um, premiere event. Uh, it was. Uh, unfortunately, due to FFG's sometimes vague wording of the documents. People didn't really understand how the rule worked. Right. So this tournament was sort of the first time we've seen it and understood what it means for the game. Yeah, yeah. Because I feel that's like one of the big things we get from these nice big premiere events where people might be proxying or even just using a lot of these units in their own casual games and there's a lot of supposition flying around. You know, like Jump Masters is a big uh, hot topic at the moment. Before this premiere event, people were like, it's going to break the game, it's done, it's over. Other people are like, oh, it's not that bad, yada, yada. And I think both camps wait for the premiere events, the pros, if you will, to kind of tell us what is the truth. That is, that is 100% correct. Like, everyone sort of looks to these events, and it's sort of, this particular event especially, this is going to sort of shape the Wave 8 meta going forward. People are going to look to this event and be like, these lists in the top eight, I need to know how to beat these. I need, I, we now have goals for our list. We now have, like, targets that we need to meet. Which is which is really good for the sort of for the community having these sort of big events to set the scene, as it were. Um, the other thing it did that I thought was really interesting, just to uh, perhaps jump ahead a touch though, is that out of all of the entrants, it was almost an even split between all three factions: Scum, Rebel, and Imperial. Which is not something we would have expected because Scum are well, they're Scum. Yeah, actually, it the the least represented uh, faction was Rebels at thirty two percent of the field. So. Nearly exactly a third. Obviously, it was 34% for each of the other two factions to give us a, an even 100. But it's certainly like, well, you know, sort of first time recently where Rebels aren't at the top of the, the pile. Uh, you know, they've been a, around for a while. They've often been putting up good results, etc. I believe that the last three World Championships have been run by Rebel lists. Um, in some of them, it's even been Rebels versus Rebels finals. So seeing this particular tournament where Rebels were the slight underdogs going into it is, is certainly interesting. So if we, if we look towards the, the top eight lists for this tournament, first, let's just, let's just get it out of the way. The, the fears have been founded to be true. Triple Jump Masters did take down the event. Now, that being said, fears are true. How much of this is down to people being unfamiliar with the Jump Master threat? Or Jumpmasters actually being just straight up a real harsh matchup? Uh, it, it's tough to tell. Obviously, we, we don't have the sort of the, the exact play-by-plays of every single game that happens up. However, what we can do is look towards some of the other lists that were successful and see how many lists with Jumpmasters were actually at the top of the pile and how many weren't. It's also important to know how many were actually at the event. So I believe it was something like... 34 jump masters were 34 players were playing jump masters at the Hoth Open out of about 200 players. So a seventh of the field is uh, quite a large amount. 
We don't know, unfortunately, how many of these are the, the feared triple jump master list, which is the, the very fearsome ordinance list that have popped up since Wave 8 came out, and how many of them are just someone with, like, say, a Dengar here, or, you know, a jump master here filling out points. Uh, what we do know, however, is that in the, the top eight of the event, there were two triple jump master lists. What's more interesting to note is that there were five Imperial Ace lists in the top eight, which is a lot more than, than two triple jump master lists. Like, that's more than half of the top eight. What, what do you think we can take away from that, Chris? Uh, yeah, so I guess what it shows us is that it seems like Imperial Aces is really, really good against this jump master list. Uh, so, I mean, the Jump Masters rely on a whole bunch of different synergies. So the, the predominant one, I suppose, is that they use their Deadeye skill to spend focus instead of target locks. They then use that to get a free target lock off, off an Astromech, and then they can modify all their dice, and if they still miss, they then get to use Guidance Chips, um, and they, they just have this huge amount of value they get for uh, throwing torpedoes at aces. And they have extra munitions, so they do it twice! <laughs> I don't like it. But that being said, the question that strikes me initially when I look at this um, top eight list is Jumpmasters do what Jumpmasters do. And yet we've got all these Imperial Aces in there. In my mind, like, I mean, Jumpmasters came first, so fine. But in my mind, I don't view the, the Imperial Aces archetype giving a particularly favourable matchup against Jump Masters. So why are people taking them? Uh, and they placed well too. So what, what was the approach then? What was the thinking? Uh, so I'm, I, I'm not 100% up on this. This is just opinions, of course, as usual. I think it's because a whole lot of the aces that the Imperials have access to have things that individually break up the, uh, the, the Jump Masters. Those yeah. are the ones. Wow, I can't believe I forgot that. Uh, so, for example, Carnor Jax made an appearance. Usually, this particular TIE Interceptor pilot is left at home in favour of his big brother, Suntia Fell. Carnor Jax's ability is, as long as he's at range one of an enemy ship, they can't spend or take focus or evade actions and tokens and stuff. They can't use them at all. So, by having him fly right up against the old uh, Jump Masters, they can't use their Dead Eye ability, they don't get a free target lock, their, their, their plan starts to, to starts to fall apart. Uh, Omega Leader makes an appearance in these ace lists again. 26 points is quite quite cheap, even by like you know any standard. And his ability of when he has a target lock on an enemy ship, they can't modify dice is excellent because they can't use their guidance chips. They can't use the uh, proton torpedo ability to change their, uh, their dice. They can't spend their target locks for any value. We have an, another ship that's sort of breaking apart what they do. When you combine that with the, the resiliency and firepower of the, the Lambda shuttle with Palpatine on it, that's also allowing you to weather the initial onslaught better, you have a whole bunch of things that don't, they don't necessarily give you a great matchup, but if you use your tools correctly, you have more of a chance than the tools that other lists provide. And I suppose another consideration when thinking of a list you need to deal with, e.g. the jump master, is you don't want to go so heavily into the, for want of a better term, counterpicking that you open yourself up to other matchups. So I'm guessing this um, Imperial Aces kind of hits that nice in-between spot. Yeah, it's, it's good against a whole bunch of things. It's sort of one of those lists where you can see a sort of a direct correlation between how skilled the pilot is and the results they get if they're flying it effectively. Yeah, yeah. Um, the Aces list is one of those ones that's got a really high skill cap, but I think once you hit that, it becomes a super effective list. To, you know, if you can 
make full use of that arc dodging and of the, the way you can break up the synergies, you can really see how a skilled pilot is going to be able to use that against those jump masters. The other thing that's, that's sort of less important but more important is one of the things that triple jump masters does is it really likes to engage the enemy at range three because they can then, you know, they're not taking a lot of firepower back, but because they're using secondary weapons, they don't grant the extra defense dice at range three. This is great for Imperial Aces because almost all their ships take auto thrusters. So you get like another layer of defense. And one of the sort of identifiable, one of the things you'll immediately notice about the triple jump master list is once they've made their first couple of barrages of ordnance, they are two attack dice ships, which aren't all that threatening. Like, you know, that's a tight fighter in terms of attack power. That's not great. Yeah, your, your average Sunterfell doesn't really care too much about a, uh, a two attack coming at it, even if it is turreted. All that being said, the turret point is a, is, a is, is a strong differentiator between them and a TIE fighter. I feel once those initial barrages are over with and you're starting to get into the later parts of the game, there's nothing like turret weapons to just grind out on whatever's left. Like, you've used your ordnance to take out the key targets and then grind out the, the chaff afterwards. I think that's certainly a contributing factor to why we don't see the, the always evergreen popular TIE Swarm in the top eight at all. Because having the prevalence of a still turret-heavy meta, you know, TIE Swarms have had to weather the TLT meta of Wave 7 into now the Jumpmaster turrets of Wave 8... Things don't look great for high uh, agility dice arc dodging ships versus the resilient ships. And now we have the unfortunate circumstance of these high ordnance, like the high damage the ordnance can put out is answering the high health ships and the turrets are answering the high evade dice arc dodging ships. And that's one of the things that's contributing to the, the jump master prevalence in the meta. Yeah, but I mean, obviously the jump masters aren't the be all and end all because like we saw, there were only two in the top, even if they did take it out. The other thing as well, obviously, is we had two jump master lists in the top eight and we had five Imperial ace lists in the top eight, which leaves us with an eighth list. Yeah, yeah, all right. Who, uh, who wants to take this one? Because this is a sweet list. Uh, Chris, I would love for you to tell us about this list. <sighs> Thank you. All right, so this is a really, really cool little uh, Rebels brew using the new VCX 100. So, the ghost, for those of you not in the know. Yeah. All right. So uh, this list was, as already said, the ghost or Chopper. Uh, and then as crew, we had Hera and Ezra. They then took an ion projector, fire control system, and a dorsal turret. And I'll walk you through how all of those sexy little upgrades work together in a sec. But accompanying that ghost was our good old friend, Mr. Poe Dameron. But he had a bit of a spin on him this time. Instead of having the classic VI, he took Predator along with R5P9 and Auto Thrusters. And then filling out the points was a Talus Squadron pilot, which is the, uh, the slight upgraded Z95 pilot with a slightly higher pilot skill. Pilot skill 4 instead of 2. Indeed. So uh, let's talk about this Ghost because the Ghost is a new ship and they've used a whole bunch of new upgrades on it. So the Ghost being a large base ship has a pretty beefy attack does come with four attack dice as standard which is quite nice and accompanying that we have 16 health points split 10 and 6 across uh, hull and shields yeah really hard to take down especially when you load it up with a whole bunch of sweet upgrades so we've got chopper as the pilot which means that anybody who bumps into your large base ghost is going to take a stress at the start of combat specifically so they do get to take their sorry they don't get to take action because they, they, bump, they but, bumped but yeah. it, it is important to note that it is at the start of the the combat step that that stress gets given out yep so then the upgrades we have harrison door which means that the ghost can always move 
with a red maneuver, even while it has stress on it. Uh, it has Ezra, which means that while you are stressed, you get to uh, change one focus change one. result to a crit. Right. Help uh, you out there, Chris. Thanks. Yeah, I uh, had a bit of a mental blank there. And now, fire control system means that even while you are stressed, you can still take a target lock on a ship if you fire at it. So you fire at it, then after you resolve your attack, you get to take a target lock on it for next turn. Not a target lock action, though, which is why you get to use it while you're stressed. Indeed. Um, and then a dorsal turret, meaning that you have a range 2 attack all around, 360, and even though it's only 2 attack dice, you do get the short range bonus on this one. That's its special effect. Yeah. And then the super spicy thing that I love is the ion projectors, which means that if a ship crashes into your ghost, they roll an attack die, and on a hit or a crit result, they take an ion token. Just on a quick side note, um, I know you guys are open to feedback uh, during podcasts. Maybe for next podcast, we could get a soundboard effect for every time Chris uses the uh, buzzword spicy. Maybe like a, oh, oh, so spicy. Yeah, something like that. Yeah, I, I feel like if we did it with that accent, it might be considered racist. Oh, not for me. I can do it. It's fine. Okay, no worries. Uh, <laughs> we will definitely look into a soundboard for you. Chris, do you want to you keep running us through the list? Please. All right. Um, yeah, so I really like that build of the ghost because we've, we've seen a few different people throwing things around with the ghost, whether you load it up with, you know, accuracy correctors and auto blasters and try to throw out unavoidable damage or you load it up with the, the shuttle or whatever. But this particular build gives you a really, really sweet blocker. It certainly does do that. Uh, Chopper's, one of, the, one of the selling points for it as a blocker is Chopper is only pilot skill four. So he's often going to be moving relatively early and putting himself in awkward positions. The combination of having Hera as a, a crew member, letting you always have access to all of your maneuvers. The dial on this thing is sick. It uses every single maneuver template available in the game. It has every single one move, every single two move, every single three move, all the way up to a 5k turn. So basically, you're going to put this thing wherever you want it on the board, and your opponent then has to deal with it. And if they hit you, they might be taking an ion token, they're definitely taking a stress... It's not, not going too well for them at that point. Yeah, in my uh, my experience flying against this particular list, that that lock is disgusting. Yeah, we will definitely uh, touch upon that a bit later, that yeah. game. Ugh. So walk us through the what you what you think of this Poe build. It's a bit different. Not you, Chris. Uh, Pierre, please. You're, you're <laughs> a Poe fanatic? Yeah, I am a Poe fanatic. At least initially I was. Okay, so um, the first thing that strikes me with this particular Poe build is it's similar in many ways, to pose we've seen before, you've got the ever-present, it feels like, uh, Poe regeneration. But it has one key difference. Instead of making that um, pilot skill bid for a Poe with veteran instincts, which adds plus two to his pilot skill, putting, to, putting him to a 10, we've got Predator. I really like this because one of my big criticisms with Poe Dameron, while I love him as a character in, in the movies, and he was the whole reason I got into X-Wing, is as I played with him and I've played the game, I find, me personally, I find him a rather static kind of play piece. He doesn't give you many decisions because his main decision is to not spend the focus token. Decision one, make decisions so that he gets the focus token, e.g. dodge rocks, don't get blocked. Decision two, 
when you're being attacked, should I spend the focus? Generally not, because you're going to want it for later on. The R5P9 build is especially egregious because it depends on him having the focus token at the end of the round. So again, that's more decisions taken away from you. It's a, it's a really solid build. It's amazing, don't get me wrong, but I'm just talking about in-game choices. The Predator, however, is nice because it at least allows you to do more things with him and um, gives him a bit more of a kick than you normally get with a um, Poe Dameron build. Yeah, that's true. Uh, so obviously having Predator means when you when you roll that roll where you get like a hit and a couple of focus results and you, you, you're like, oh, do I just Poe one of them? Do I use the focus to, to change both into hits? You now have this sort of extra little net of, oh, I can just Predator it and roll that dice again. Which is which is kind of handy, and it means you 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 you're getting more mileage out of your ship because obviously Poe Dameron doesn't get to take a lot of target locks because you really want to be stacking that focus token every time so that you have access to all your options. Yeah, it's it feels very similar to the Vader conundrum where you want that target lock on the thing that he's bullying, but then he's like, I can't get rerolls anyway. Yeah, Not at the moment hand. I'm I'm quite high on taking Predator on Darth Vader as well, so it's 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 definitely that idea of. How can we create pseudo actions through our upgrade slots? And Predator is a pseudo target lock, which is which is really great in this particular Poe build. And I can see that obviously uh, the, the player that was playing this this Rebel list was really trying to sort of have a more killy ship to go with his his ghost because the ghost puts out a lot of damage, but unfortunately zero evade dice means it also goes down at some point. Having a regenerating Poe as your long game piece with Predator is going to be able to output the damage to sort of keep you going later into the game. But uh, but how do you reconcile that with the fact that, I mean, as a late game piece, he's now only pilot skill eight, which means he's he's losing out in those arc dodging wars, essentially with, you know, your Sunterfells and, you know, all of those sort of uh, Imperial aces that we're seeing up at the top tables now. Uh, it's, it's kind of lucky that the, the ghost itself is going to deal with a lot of those issues earlier in the game. So the kind of the idea is that you really want to spend your ghost and you're, you're more than willing to throw it away if you can use it to take out that clutch ace to give Poe a chance to the late game. So it really comes back to a matter of target prioritization. If you know that Poe is going to be outmatched in the late game by a Sun Fell, put your ghost in places where Sun Fell is going to get messed up early in the game and that way you don't have to deal with that problem later. When we talk about the ghost messing up aces, etc., um, this ghost has some bump elements. Are you talking about the bumping or just the raw firepower the ghost can bring to bear? Uh, it's, it's, it's a little column A, a little column B. So the bumping thing is huge. Like, if you can line the ghost up correctly, there is a chance that you are able to lock out an ace for the entire game because it's going to keep getting iron tokens and stress tokens and not be able to move away from you. And you're going to try and keep moving into it so that you just have this, this awkward shuffle where neither of you move but they're getting more stressed and ionized and they're not getting anywhere and you're still using your turret to deal damage to other threats. On the other hand, you know, you also do have a four dice attack and a turret and you have more health than even a group of aces can conceivably chew through in a turn or two. So you're able to keep putting out that firepower. They have to try and deal with that and dodge that, but you don't really have to worry about that same concern. I think that's about all there is to say about that list and about the Hoth Open, I feel. So let's move on to some of our own brews we've been working on recently. Uh, yes, my favourite segment, Brews with Brews. That is the name of the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So we've uh, been working on some really cool lists recently. Jacob, do you want to talk us through your particularly sweet Rebel Ace list? I would love to start us off with this uh, absolutely bizarre Rebel Ace list. So... Coming off the back of the Hoth Open, I've, I've, I've sat down and thought about it. I'm like, Imperial Aces are great, 
Rebel Aces would be better. So I've come up with like a really sweet three ace list. Uh, I'm, I'm, I think this is a pretty genius myself. So I have a, uh, I, I have, I have uh, an A wing, a B wing, and a T seventy X wing. So the A wing is Jake Farrell, uh, who is the pilot skill seven A wing pilot who gets free boosts and barrel rolls off of focus actions. Uh, he has taken the the A wing title, which is uh, test pilot, which lets him have two EPT slots instead of one. And his EPTs that he has taken are Lone Wolf. So that when he's uh, off by himself, he has some some rerolls and uh, push the limit for even more actions. So we have two actions a turn, plus we have his free action off of a focus action. So usually he's going to be doing three actions, given that he can clear the stress from push the limit with his insane green dial. Uh, he also has shard and refit in his uh, ordinance slot, which makes him two points cheaper, and uh, auto thrusters, you know, to beat the TLT turret meta. Uh, the second ship I have is a Kayan Farlander in the B-Wing, who is a, another pilot skill 7 pilot. Uh, Kayan's special ability is that they can he can spend stress tokens as if they were focus tokens on the attack. So uh, turning his eye results into hits. Uh, on this one we have the title, which gives it a crew slot, which costs one point for the title. And then the crew member we're taking is uh, Hira Syndulla, which lets me take red maneuvers even while I'm stressed. Which lets you have this really cool uh, stress stacking thing going on where you just pile up stress tokens early in the game and then start spending them like they're candy later. Uh, the other thing we have on that one is Predator. Uh, once again, because we're stressed most of the time, we're not going to be able to take a lot of actions. So this gives us a pseudo-target lock. Uh, the final ship we have is uh, good old Poe Dameron. And this Poe Dameron is a little different to the normal uh, regenerating Poe. Uh, this Poe Dameron has... Uh, Push the Limit, uh, BB-8, and finally, uh, Integrated Astromech. So whenever it reveals, a, whenever Poe reveals a green maneuver, he gets to, he may take a free barrel roll, uh, and then you can trigger Push the Limit off that and take another action, like a boost or a focus. Then you take your green maneuver you revealed and you clear the stress immediately, and you can take another action. It's oozing with synergies it's yeah the each individual piece seems to have some really interesting as you say synergies and um tricks that they can do within that though what's your kind of game plan with this list because i see fine poe we we know he's kind of established himself we've got a really interesting b-wing um but then we've got this a-wing with lone wolf and coming from you know like a, uh, a squad based mentality it seems like that lone wolf is dead points unless he's separated and then he's easily picked off so how are you looking to apply the tools you've got in this list? Uh, so one of the, the really cool advantages of this is each of these ships really stands alone as like an individual sort of like, you know, in other lists, each one of these ships could conceivably be the centerpiece of a list. And we have all three of them together in one list. And what we are, we are trying to set up the puzzle where we ask our opponent, what can you do to deal with this guy, this very different guy, and this final different guy again? And it's really tough to be able to effectively answer all three of the, the different tools we have here. So we have, you know, do you focus on the, the lone wolfing A-wing that's, you know, flitting around the, your, your flanks and your rear? You know, do you, do you turn and focus on that? You know, are you able to handle this insane arc dodging Poe that's all over the shop and he almost always has a focus and he never has a stress on him? Or are you trying to deal with this, this B-wing that's pulling off all these insane red maneuvers and dealing out a ton of damage? And it's really tough to answer that with all that on board 
what um what ways do you think this differs from an ace list so like ace list seems to imply they've all got that similar game plan you just described and that sounds to me a lot like a lot of the imperial aces out there so what um are you gaining by a rebel list uh, so, sort of the big trade-off, the, 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 you're, you're taking a look at the differences between Rebels and Imperials. So Imperials typically have lower health points, and they have higher evade dice. They have better maneuvers on their dials, uh, which lets them, you know, arc dodge more effectively and take advantage of stuff. What we're instead doing is we're trading off that sort of high evasive arc dodging ability for the resiliency that's offered by Rebels with, you know, shielded ships. We've got something like 10 shields across our three ships, which means, you know, the, the stray crit that makes it through isn't going to be a game breaker. And what we've done is, with our Poe, we've made it into an arc dodger. We've, we've, you know, you've spent points on that so that it is essentially pulling off this tie interceptor-like arc dodging. Yeah, so, I mean, like you say, a lot of those arc dodging aces, if they get blocked, like a Sunterfell who doesn't get to push the limit, he's, like, really in a tough spot because he's just relying on his natural evades and his pretty weak hull. With Poe, because you get to barrel roll as soon as you reveal your maneuver, it means that it becomes really tough to block. I mean, even though he's got such a limited green dial, like, what is it? The the one banks, the one straight, the two straight, the three straight? Yep, that's all the green maneuvers he has. Yeah, so I mean, that, that sounds like it's really easy to block. He can only go straight or a one bank. But because you can barrel roll straight away and then maybe push the limit to boost off that and then take your maneuver, you've got this, like, bizarrely deceptive ship. Yeah, it's, it's great. Like... It's almost impossible to block Poe when he's making these bizarre barrel roll boosts. We don't care if Kayan Farlander gets blocked because not taking an action anyway has a thousand stress on it. And, you know, usually your your opponents are going to underestimate the, the Jake Farrell part of the equation. They're going to be more worried about the, the B-Wing and the X-Wing because those have the high offensive capabilities. But even when you try and focus on Jake Farrell, he almost always has a focus token on him. He has auto thrusters and lone wolf with three green evade dice and a couple of shields deceptively hard to take out so it's 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 really we're taking sort of the strengths of the imperial ace list and we've taken sort of the things that are learned from playing with imperial aces and we're applying them to a rebel list and so far i've had pretty good results with it uh you know chris would you like to jump over and talk about your list for the week i think i've said enough about my rebel list yeah that that's a great list that you came up with completely on your own jacob well done 100 percent on my own all right, I want to talk a bit. I've been back on the scum brew wagon, so I call this list Bump and Grind. Sexual, I like it. That's the only way I play X-Wing. So we are, we've seen with the triple jump master list, some people have innovated by coming up with what they call a bump master, who basically tries to break the mirror by just acting as a blocker to shut down other people's jump masters. So I figure I'm going to do something similar, because if there's one thing I hate, it is having my arcs dodged by Sunterfell's invaders. And so, Poe Dameron's apparently. Po, this new, just amazingly uh, maneuverable Poe Dameron. So what I've done is I've taken a contracted scout, which is the low-level jump master, and onto him I've put adaptability, an intelligence agent, a feedback array, and anti-pursuit lasers. I've then taken a cavil with predator and twin laser turret, and three binair pirates, which are the, the super cheap Z95s. So on the contracted scout, we've got... An adaptability, so we can mess around with his uh, pilot skill a little bit, depending on if we want to be blocking certain ships or perhaps getting the, uh, the shot before certain other ships. We've got an intelligence agent, so that if we get close to their ace, we at least have a bit of an idea of where they're going to end up, which means that we can use our barrel rolls to try to reposition and get in their way. And then when they slam into us, they have to roll a red dice. And if they get a hit or a crit, they take a damage off the anti-pursuit lasers. 
And then even though we can't shoot them when they're in base contact with us, we can take an ion and lose a shield to feedback array them. And taking a damage in an ion on a contracted scout is usually a pretty good trade-off for taking off a third of Sunter or you know, a quarter of Vader's health. Uh, a fifth of Vader's health. He does have five health. Uh, sure. Um, so, so the contracted scout basically is there to, to get in other people's way. It's 30 points. It's a not insignificant amount of points. But if it means that you can use that to block off an ace or break up someone's swarm or get in the way of their jousters and deny them their target locks or their focus or whatever, it, it can really uh, open up the options for the rest of your list. Yeah, it does definitely seem like an interesting take on a control element. So whereas other lists might take a nice bread and butters um, stress hog, the uh, Y-wing that uses twin laser turrets firing twice to put two stress on aces and thereby deny them the ability to take actions, this contracted out that bump master just uses blocking to take away the actions and then you've still got a piece which is putting out i'd argue at least has the potential to put out more damage than just the dependable two shots from a twin laser turret yeah i don't know if it's if it's more damage i mean the a single two dice turret attack is probably worse than a uh than the consistency of a tlt once you fact i feel it might like creep up into a little bit higher damage output than a twin laser turret once you factor in the um uh, Anti-pursuit lasers. Anti-pursuit lasers, thank you. And the feedback array. Yeah, so That's you've a got a bunch of like extra little effects going on there, which, fine, maybe they won't lead to direct damage the way TLT will. This one at least gives some additional unpleasant effects. Yeah, absolutely. Like, it throws your opponent some really tough decisions because if you can get your scout into an awkward position, they then have a really tough time being able to predict where it's going to end up because it has a pretty good dial for a, a large base ship it has a barrel roll yeah it has a celebrated dial <laughs> yeah so you can put it in some really tough positions for your opponent to deal with and they've then got to run that risk of do i want to just play it safe and end up in a spot where the jump master can't in which case you know that ace is now limiting their options enough that you can kind of play around their maneuverability so yeah the the jump master hopefully will uh give the uh, relatively unmaneuverable Z95s a little bit more game against those maneuverable aces. Who runs Z95s? Tell me more. Oh, I pretty much can't build a list without putting in Z95s at the moment. We have noticed. Yeah, they're, they're just such a solid ship for 12 points. Yeah, there is something about Z95s. Once you start running them, you'll run one, then you'll run two, and then you'll run three. Sometimes you just break the limit and jump straight ahead to five. But um, that whatever number you take them in, the more the better with Z95s as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, they're, they're just such a good shit for 12 points. Even though they may not have the dial that's anywhere near as insane as a TIE fighter, they don't have barrel roll. They're just a really solid jouster. They've got two shields. They've got two health. They just throw down dependable dice. They have a target lock. It, it's really great, though, because you, you could, if you'd like, trade two of your Z95s in for the Punishing One title on your uh, Jump Master for that sweet one extra red dice. Sorry, uh, one of your Z95s for that. Yeah, I, I don't think I'm going to make that trade. I'm going to uh, be honest. Disappoint. And the, uh, the final element of the list is Cavill, who, again, is more or less there to help prey on those maneuverable ships. So Cavill with a twin laser turret, his ability means that usually instead of having two attacks at three dice... If they're outside my primary arc, I get two attacks at four dice. And Very consistent. Yeah, this was something, um, Jacob, you and I have spoken about in the past, where looking at a twin laser turret on a two defense ship, or nearly any defense ship, um, the twin laser turret has a really good chance of pushing in one to two damage a turn. 
when you factor in auto thrusters, which is, I feel, everybody's go-to um, TLT counter. counter. Yeah. yeah, TLT counter. The odds get more in favour of the de- the ship defending the ship with twin laser, uh, the ship with auto thrusters, yeah. pushing off a lot of that damage. Then you get to go over the auto thrusters again by putting nearly any kind of modification on those dice that the TLT is using. So this could be something like Recon Specialist, which gives you two focus tokens every time you focus. Fire control systems, get that target lock on every shot. Uh, Predator works on some Hawks. That's something I've seen some Rebel players. Um, Or in your case, just a good solid Y-Wing pilot who adds an additional dice. Yep, and then you combine that with Predator. So you have four dice, you get a free re-roll on one of them or two re-rolls against low skill ships. And then in addition to that, if you have your focus token or you have a target lock, you can just modify as many of those dice as you can really and have some pretty dependable damage against high agility ships. This sounds too good to be true. Too good to be true. Tell me how many points this is worth, Chris. Uh, This is 33 points. It is pretty steep compared to, you know, just a basic Hawk with a TLT or maybe a a cheaper... uh, Syndicate Thug Y-Wing with a TLT. You've scared me off at that 33-point price tag. I'm sorry. Yeah, that's that's fair. But uh, I feel like the, the amount of damage you can kick out with that TLT, just the consistency. Like, a big thing in this game is just having consistent dice. Yeah, and, and another note with having expensive ships. I know myself as a, again, to go back to the Z95s, um, they're so cheap that you can have one or two really expensive um, pieces in your list and then by filling out the rest of the points with um, Z95s, you can still have a relatively high ship presence on the board, which is um, not to be underestimated. Yeah, yeah. So the Jump Master itself is about 30 points, Cavill's 33, which leaves just enough room to slip in three Benair Pirates to act as whether they're blockers or whether they're just flying down your enemy's throat for damage. It, it gives you a fairly well-balanced list. So by my, by my count, that's 99 points. And I have noticed that on your Cavill, you haven't got an unhinged astromech. Yeah, I'm starting to question that decision myself. I feel like it is probably more correct, to be honest. But the initiative bid is something I've been really falling in love with recently. Yeah, yeah. I was going to ask, like, so the one point off there is for an initiative bid. What uh, advantages did you think an initiative bid would give you? With your three pilot skill one ships. Yeah, so three pilot skill ones and a contracted scout at three who could go up to four or down to two. Uh, so one of the things is the Benair Pirates don't necessarily want to be the blockers in this list. You're more likely to want the scouts to be the blockers in a lot of situations. So if you can move before, say, someone else's bandit squadrons, that's going to help you to get in a position to maybe disrupt their jousting formation or whether you want to perhaps just have that option to uh, get Cavill in at seven. He's at a spot where he is mixing with some of those newer sort of mini cheaper aces. On a side question, but to do with um, initiative bids, uh, how does initiative bidding uh, interact with the adaptability mechanic? Who chooses to go up or down first? Uh, this is this is very clearly one. This is an easy one. I'll take it. Uh, the, the player with initiative makes their adaptability decisions first. Uh, so whenever there is uh, an issue with simultaneous timing, player with initiative always takes it first. If uh, one player has multiple things happening simultaneously, they get to resolve in the order of their choosing. Yeah, yeah. It, it definitely seems to be another element where initiative is really starting to um, be relevant is this these other secondary effects which are popping up. Yeah. So now it isn't just like deployment and asteroids. You've got these early or, you know, I want to say pre-game mechanics, which are hyper-relevant to matchups. Yeah, and, like, 
just to go quickly back to that Hoth Open thing, the, the list that did win, the Triple Jump Master list, 97 points. He went for a three-point initiative bid, and it seemed to pay off. And he was just trying to break that mirror of the other contracted scout lists. Yeah, that does outline like oh sorry that does underline how strong an initiative bid can potentially be to certain matchups and it's something that i feel like everybody's going to be looking at a lot more closely moving forward with their list building especially with the advent of adaptability yeah i think initiative is one of those things you really need to consider under a couple of situations so one of them is if you are dying to have good blocks or if you are dying to have good arc dodging because those are the two situations where having or giving away the initiative can be an important consideration i feel yeah that's that's definitely true i'm just not sure if with with the spread of pilot skills you have in your list i'm not sure whether that one point bid is worth more than an unhinged astromech on cavill especially yeah. when cavill really wants to be in a position where he can use his turret and at the moment it's quite easy to ride in range one of him yeah no i i on consideration i'm starting to feel like the extra utility on cavill is probably worth losing that initiative bid just because the uh the red maneuvers on the y-wing can hurt your maneuverability a bit so i think having those all green three band of maneuvers could really be a, a big plus to the list it's interesting though because while i agree with what you're saying jacob that you probably are better off spending the extra point and going to a hundred correct mm -hmm. yeah a yeah. hundred as demonstrated by the jump master list when you start running into mirror matches that's when you really want to have that initiative bid. So, like, not let's say weirdly, but if the list, you know, your your list now that you're talking about became hyper prevalent, all of a sudden you'd see people going, you know what, I'll drop that integrated, that astromech so that I can have the initiative bid. So, I know it's weird. It's uh, it's one of those times when there feels like there's no clear-cut answer. Uh, I think it's it's important to, in those cases, be looking for places where you can shave points. I think at this point where people are at with their testing and playing over the last, you know, forever since we've got the sort of the scum ships, that unhinged astromech is almost an auto-include on a Y-Wing for the amount of value it adds. With the way Cavill operates, with wanting to be out of arc, with the ability of the unhinged astromech to be taking these awesome three moves, you could think about cutting Predator down to Lone Wolf, and you're saving a point there and finding your initiative bid, and you're still getting the advantage of rerolls, and like you know, you're probably going to be away from the rest of your ships as you try and circle around the edge of the field to fire off your TLT shots. Yeah, it's actually. Uh, let me just grab a pen and I'll be right back after I jot down a few things. Always happy to help you, Chris. All right, uh, we got one more list we want to talk about though, so I'm going to lob it on over to Pierre to talk about his rebel list. Imperials, Imperials, oh, Imperials, Imperials. Imperials. That's all good. Heathen. Uh, so I suppose I've been instructed by my gracious host that I can't skip over the name of my list as it was printed on the sheet that I gave them. So the name of my list is uh, Blumenkranz, a.k.a. Zappy Zappy Pew Pew Waifus. Um, that's a whole... <laughs> that's a whole research... Um, hell a whole research evening that um viewers can feel free to try and track down the sources of the inspiration of my names uh but all that aside my list itself consists of how runner which is the pilot skill eight tie fighter which allows friendly ships within range one to re-roll one attack dice so how runner with a crack shot coupled with omega leader of uh notoriety with the uh, regular Duke and Comrie lays on them. Duke allowing 
Omega Leader to change one of the defenders' dice rolls to a focus um, symbol and uh, com relay, allowing uh, Omega Leader to retain any uh, one evade token that they have on them. Uh, it's important to note that Juke only works while you have that evade token on you. Yes, sorry. It, sorry it's it's you. so easy to forget yeah. because you never don't have an evade token because of the com yeah, relay. Yeah, that's yeah. illustrating the wonderful synergy that comes there in Omega Leader. Um, and then the rest of the list is rounded out with two Black Squadron pilots, which are pilot skill four um, TIE fighters with crack shot and uh, two Academy pilots, which are just the base TIE fighter pilot skill one. Um, so this list is, uh, I suppose others would say it's my type of list. It's got a lot of moving parts. This is something I enjoy in X-Wing. I try and um, bring it in my Rebel list and my um, Imperial lists. The things I was looking for from this list is the similar damage output to a, um, a typical TIE swarm, with a few more late game elements, especially in the form of Omega Leader. I really loved Omega Leader. I think it's a very elegant package. On a little side note, I love that I love the way all the upgrades you need for an effective Omega Leader come in the TIFO um, expansion pack. That's great. Special shout out to beginning players. If you can get your hands on a TIFO expansion, go buy one. It's an immediate level up to your Imperial lists. It's, it's absolutely great. Great tool to pick up, start using, learn to play. And I enjoy, also enjoy the list for a few little synergies where I like... Obviously, I love getting re-rolls with um, Hellrunner. I like to just have lots of things to do every turn. So Hellrunner gives me that in the re-rolls. And with the way Omega Leader works, Omega Leader similar to Darth Vader where they don't want to spend their target lock. They have an additional effect on the target that they target lock. And so that gives you a bonus at the cost of not having natural access to rerolls, how Runner gives that to Omega Leader. Outside of that, I tend to run it just as a fairly typical TIE Swarm. The points have been jumbled around a little bit where I end up with the two uh, Academy pilots, and they're the element of the list that I'm struggling the most with to apply. The idea is that they're going to be um, blockers, but right now they just tend to be a bit of flappy TIE fighters who don't really have a plan and get shot down by themselves. It certainly is tough to sort of, I believe it's 24 points for two Academy Pilots. It's very tough in an Imperial list to find something that fits nicely for 24 points. When you have this, you know, much like the Z95, they're just two ships that you can put on the board for that 24 points. And it's tough to find something else that's as good in that same slot. Yeah, most definitely. Most definitely. Um, like also when it comes down to how the um, list works on the board, I, I'm a big uh, fan of the, the pinwheel formation and without going into nitty gritty details, that's just basically when you have four ships nice and tight together um, flying, flying around trying to find a target to take down. The um, strength of this is that it has a lot of your force applying their damage to a small area without um, being open to your opponent's counterattack. The downside is that it is very finicky. If you bump into something, if you run over an asteroid, if you run into an, an enemy ship, then your formation's broken and it's either going to be impossible to get it back or you do not have the time to get it back because your opponent is now pressuring you with their attack. It is one of those cases with this particular formation where the whole is more than the sum of its parts. Like the, these four ships that you fly in formation are going to be putting out more than what they get individually. And so the importance of maintaining it is, is quite high. Yeah, yeah. That's one thing, though, that the list, like I'm really enjoying with, uh, enjoying from the list is that 
game after game, I feel I'm getting a little bit better at flying this really finicky pinwheel formation. I'm, I've got a bit of creative freedom with the two academies on the side. Like they're not necessarily tied to the rest of the force. And so I can kind of attempt to apply them in interesting ways. I'm not yet convinced that that's the strongest way to um, run them, but I feel it's untapped uh an, an untapped area that people haven't looked at yet um especially with the advent of jump masters so you say that you have these academy pilots off doing their own thing so presumably being you know low skill not as powerful with you know no crack shot no epts are you predominantly just looking to use them as blockers or as flankers how have you been trying to use them so far because you talk about these interesting ways Okay, so if you look at the way a lot of tie swarms are run, they are done in they are deployed in a block formation. Again, that's very similar to the pinwheel I described, but it's mainly just having your ties in one big block. Then when they are when they start flying out of their deployment zone, the block will break and typically look to reform when the opponent comes into uh, one of the block's firing arcs. The idea is you break them up, get around some um, rocks, and then apply all six, seven um, ships into one or two of your enemy's ships. I'm trying to, if you will, get the best out of both worlds here in that I've got a very solid block, which has these two other free-flowing units which are used predominantly to block whatever the main um, force is going to kill. Other ways that I want to use them is to just have them as a distraction so I can put them off to the side in a non-committal position and see if my opponent, if that worries my opponent. I feel a lot of people who are, you know, in the intermediate level, which I definitely put myself in, are just used to not used to thinking my opponent will put their ships on whatever side of the field I am not on. We will both move up on our sides of the board and then turn towards each other as as per the internet tells us. Yeah, so uh, either you are trying to draw them through the asteroid field because you feel you have the advantage in that particular joust, or you're trying to, you know, attack yourself through the asteroid field to sort of catch those larger base ships unawares, that sort of thing. It's, it's one or the other, typically. Yeah, most definitely. And having six ships all together in one big block, I feel it's a very, um, it's a very aggressive and powerful formation, but it's also very predictable. Mm. And when you want a blocker, the last thing you want is predictability. So by having those one to two ships off on the side... I'm aiming to try and fly them in a way where they're not overly vulnerable and are going to come at my opponent to block them or even just come into a range one attack from an angle they're not used to. It's very low risk as well. Like they're not expensive ships. So if they get blown up because of this sort of like faint to one side of the board, you're not particularly upset. Yeah. So, I mean, if you use them and that makes your opponent misdeploy or you end up getting a good block on some of their ships or breaking up their formation because they want to deal with it, that seems like they've gotten their 24 points worth of value really. Yeah, most definitely. I suppose it's also just kind of having them there being unorthodox also gives me like a new experience every time I play the list. So I'm getting that kind of one part of the list that I want to learn to refine and fly well, which is obviously the Power Runner, Omega Leader and two Black Squadron pilots in a pinwheel of four. But those other two ships, I can do crazy things with them. And even if I lose them, that's not the end of the game. And so in, the, in my play experiences, I get to have a much deeper form of experimentation, which is, has really helped me enjoy the game, reinvigorated me. Very important to be having fun when you're playing. Like, that's really a, a key thing in X-Wing. Like, let's say that Triple Jump Masters is the only viable list to play. It's, it's crushing all the tournaments. I've got to play it. If you don't have fun playing it, put it down, 
pick up something else. Fly a bizarre tie swarm. Fly triple rebel aces. Fly the bump master. Like, look look to be having fun when you play X-Wing. Don't be feel like it's a chore because I have to pay, play the best list. All right, so now that we've heard all those three lists, let's take them out for a bit of a road test and see how they fare. All right, so the first game was between the Imperial, I mean, Rebel Aces list of Jacob and Pierre's Cracked End Swarm. <laughs> That's the, the name is actually Pew Pew Zappity Waifus, a.k.a. Blumenkranz. Actually reverse that. Uh, apologies, Pierre. So Pierre's Cracked End Swarm versus the Aces. I'm going to throw it over to Jacob. Tell us how this game went down. Uh, so uh, this game was pretty interesting. Like we've got uh, an Ace versus Swarm situation and typically a, a crack swarm such as Pierre's is going to do reasonably well against aces. They're ace hunters. Unfortunately, rebel aces are not the same as imperial aces, and the ability to use crack shot to shoot down evade dice is not as relevant when they have shields, right? Like, you're, you're losing that sort of that edge that you have in the, the, the imperial ace matchup. So it was kind of cool to immediately be like, oh, that's an upside of playing rebel aces over imperial aces. Uh, so, uh, so our game had, like, a, a really clear early, mid, and late game. So... You know, we both set up our ships on the board and I immediately punched Jake Farrell like really hard forward right up into it because I figured I could arc dodge really well with my, you know, lone wolf auto thrusters. Yeah, and like as I saw this A-Wing careening towards what I thought was a very intimidating bunch of TIE fighters ready to just blast the first thing that came towards me, I was wondering whether there was some like interaction i hadn't spotted on um jacob's cards like whether this a-wing was going to do something really crazy or whether he had overestimated what was going to happen from this a-wing so i aim to just move my to not overreact and just move my guys into a traditional firing line i suppose as i'd call it um worth noting the pinwheel the four ships are still together and my two academies are within range two of them but slightly further back yeah, uh, un unfortunately for me, uh, Crazy Jake is not Psycho Tycho, and so Jake immediately gets shot down. It's it's turn two, and Jake is off the board. Let's be fair, dice were a factor, but at the same time, he was within range of all my ships. Yeah, dice were a factor insofar as you rolled a shitload of dice into a Jake Farrell that was on the wrong side of the board. Yeah, and 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 Jake was gone. Like, did did nothing. Didn't didn't fire a single shot. Uh, absorbed fire that wasn't going to go anywhere else because none of my other ships were in range and was wasted. And thus ended the early game and we moved <laughs> straight into the mid game on turn four. Uh, so at this point, we, we've got a bit of a jumble going in the middle. The, the, the TIE formation is breaking apart and they're, they're in the thick of it. And uh, Kay and Farlander and Poe have sort of split around an asteroid and tried to sort of start splitting up the swarm. And we get like a really cool sort of uh, a turn where... Omega Leader, uh, his, his lower pilot skill ties sort of all move around and line up some arcs, and Kane Farlander sort of moves right into the middle of it, and Omega Leader does a sweet S-loop and lands right perfectly range one right next to the uh, to the Kane Farlander. At this point, all of the ships are within possibly a rectangle of range two across and range one up. Like, it was really tight, and we've got people pulling um, K-turns within this, so it was very, like, like the, touch the, and go. The best part about it, though, is I think there was, like, one bump with these eight ships in the middle together. Uh, and so, Omega Leader does his S-loop, and then Poe Dameron 
you know, punches it and does a K-turn straight past it, ends up on the other side of the conflict facing back into it. Which, in terms of my own uh, reflections on games, that's something which I recognise I need to work on, especially as I tend to not take the higher pilot skill aces and so thus need to know how to combat them. Blocking is the name of the game here. You always want to block these guys. But I'd had... I feel I had every trajectory blocked off except for the one forward and... Um, Poe went straight through. Yeah, and it's sort of like a, actually a bit of like an outlier because when you're playing against Poe, you often see him taking green maneuvers so that he can always have that focus, especially when you're looking at a Poe that has BB-8 on green maneuvers and push the limit. So to see him go red K4, let's do it, bit unexpected. Yeah, and to be honest, like everybody goes on with the T-70s about having their um, talon rolls, the uh, three hard K-turn essentially. And so I, I like I myself know that I'm, mainly focusing on that and i forget they've just got a traditional four yeah and and it was super sweet so like in this round of shooting like uh some shields get knocked off a few things and i believe one tie fell which which was a uh, a wake-up call that maybe i wasn't in as good a position as i thought i was having taken out a fairly expensive ace in the early game at the same time i've got a kindle of hope sort of starting as you know i'm like oh maybe maybe my aces can do this because to be honest when i was looking at that pile up of five ties versus my two aces i was a little scared yeah, and as we're moving through this, like, mid-game, which went for, because of the scrum, a surprisingly short amount of time, I think it was roughly two to three turns at most. Yeah, and then everyone sort of split off, mostly because a few tyres did not make it through that scrum, unfortunately. Yeah, exactly so. So I lost both of my Black Squadron tyres in here, so at this point my list is down to four ships, and I managed to take out the B-Wing in this. Uh, I'm pretty... I'm, no, the, the, the B-Wing... The Correct B-Wing. Me. The B-Wing did make it through this, and it yes. died the turn after Omega Leader died. Yeah, but I mean, in that time, Kian showed how much damage he can kick out. Using those stress-like focus, and with the re-rolls, he was just taking TIE Fighters down like something that dies really fast. Well, yeah, he basically took down as much of a TIE as he could each turn, which was one. And that, like, that's crazy. It was really... I, like, I, I sort of went into the game... This was my first game with the list, and I was like... Maybe it's cool that I can sort of be a moldy crow with my B-Wing and take a whole bunch of red maneuvers early in the game and stack up my stress. And it sort of paid off when I got into the scrum because I had three stress tokens ready to go. And, you know, the range one B-Wing four dice with Predator with a focus every turn is really, really good. Yeah, like I was super surprised with its performance because in my mind, I'm used to ships which get bumped have a lesser effect than if they didn't bump. And this B-Wing racking up um, stress points, which essentially f um, function as focus, was like really weird for me. Um, and on, also on a side note, a bit of advice for other, let's say, uh, TIE Swarm players who are just starting out with it. Have a contingency for when you bump. Because in this game, I went in there just thinking I have to punch Poe as hard in the face as possible and my lovely little formation got broken up because of this, and then it was just chaos. And I feel that's one of the biggest points where my plan kind of failed. Yeah, and that's a problem that happens with lots of TIE Swarms is TIE Swarms are an early game list. They, they want to punch through damage early while they have the power of their formation, they still have their crack shots up, and as soon as they start splintering apart... TIE Fighters aren't particularly strong ships. That's why they're so cheap. That's like the upside. Yeah, and especially once um, you start getting into the late game which um, saw me with, as I've said, my four ships 
against the um, Poe Dameron. But this is like right on the cusp of the late game and I feel the turning point was when Omega Leader got taken out. Uh, yeah, and this was sort of one of the, the weirder plays in my mind that, that Pierre made is Pierre put a target lock from Omega Leader on, on Kay and Farlander and then started shooting with Omega Leader at Poe Dameron. So he had the defensive ability that I couldn't modify my attack dice when attacking Omega Leader, which didn't really affect me because I just went with Kay and Farlander, I'll attack your other ships. Like you have plenty of targets for me. And you didn't get the offensive bonus that you could have gotten from a Megalita shooting at Poe Dameron without me being able to, to defend. And yeah, I, I feel that I definitely agree that was one of the biggest like mistakes which I made during our game. And it's worth um, touching on how susceptible lists that function similar to TIE Swarms suffer from cascading errors. So while they love having like strong initial joust just scalping out one key target and snowballing to victory from there if you muck it up like let's say if your ships bump somewhere unwantedly you muck up your target prioritization that's um essential like turn lost um that you just copped is really going to hurt you moving forward and that's really enough one of the advantages of the list that i was playing there's not a whole lot of synergy between my ships they're individually strong things so when i lost jake on turn two I didn't really care because I could carry it on the back of my other two ships because they weren't relying on Jake to be good. Uh, at this point, Omega Leader goes down and we sort of enter the late game phase and it's two Academy pilots and Howrunner versus a Podamron with, I believe, two hull left and without the privilege of regeneration because I had a BB-8, which turned out to be sort of my, my saviour as my Podamron began an, an elegant game of cat and mouse where he dodged all of the arcs all of the time. Yeah, like I was left in a position where I outnumbered Poe three to one, but I was struggling to lock him down. So at this point, I lack even outnumbered three to one. It's really hard to block Poe Dameron. And while going for the blocks, being able to get good shots at him. So like even if you manage to block him, a TIE fighter shooting at range three is not that good. Yeah. The other thing that sort of made it a bit difficult is at the start of the game, when we did initiative, uh, Pierre did take the initiative, move first, shoot first, which is great for a TIE Swarm in the early game because you get to put out that those shots before they get to shoot at you. So more of your Swarm is intact for the, the initial joust. When it comes to the late game against an Arc Dodger, it makes it a lot harder because I can react to all of his moves. Yeah, and that definitely highlights a uh, another fault that I did, uh, coming back to that mistake made in the mid game where I target locked the B-Wing and yet still shot at Poe. My my game plan was to go for Poe right from the start, to kill him. And like that, I was very sure that I could outmaneuver a B-Wing in the late game. It doesn't have that many defense dice, and more importantly, it's filled with stress. Yeah, luckily for me, with Hero on the B-Wing, I have access to what ends up being a really good dial when you don't have to acknowledge the red maneuvers. Yeah, like people give the B-Wing dial a lot of flack. And it's understandable because it's loaded down with reds and it's only got a handful of pretty average greens. Four greens, I believe. Yeah, so it's got the one banks, the one straight, the two straight. I think that's it. That is all. And it has more red maneuvers than green maneuvers. Yeah, which... Basically a lambda. Yeah, I don't know about... Eh, actually, but like it, it sounds terrible, right? Like so many reds, very predictable greens. But because you have Hera on that, it means you have access to some really crazy maneuvers. You have like a 2K turn. That you can take every time. Yeah, it's amazing. And it gives you a focus when you do? Pseudo-focus. Yeah. But then again, you don't really need that focus on the defense because you only have one defense dice anyway. So it's, it's pretty good. I'll trade off the no defensive focus for the ability to have that maneuver dial. Yeah, and so the late game, as I said, was a cat and mouse game between uh, Poe arc dodging and moving around and me trying to entrap him. 
the upshot was that the game just dragged on so long that I ended up calling it, but I feel the end result would have been um, pretty clear cut. Yeah, I, I believe How Runner went down, and then you were sort of like, uh, this is probably it. Yeah, yeah, it was How Runner went down. Sorry, I totally forgot about that. I did get uh, to kill How Runner. <laughs> Just wanted Hal to claim Runner that. <laughs> and at that point, the prospect of killing Poe Dameron, as bloodied as he was, with a mere two Thai academies, was just not worth it. I played it out a little bit, if anything, as an academic pursuit, but yeah, at the end of the day, we called there. It was a really good game at the end. Though. Uh, it was it was quite interesting sort of seeing how the the late game list versus the early game list and in this situation like an ace list is a late game list you want to play as long as possible to get the most value out of these like cool things your ships are doing so for example you know poe with bb8 taking the three actions eternal push limit every turn that goes past you're taking more actions than them you're getting more value yeah and I mean, those those tie swarms, like you said, they they can dominate that early game with all of these crack shots that try to snipe out important elements. But when you get down to it, Poe Dameron with so much BB-8 maneuverability with push to limit, he can outmaneuver, you know, two, three, four of those tie fighters. As uh, I don't think he could have done it for four, but three was definitely manageable. Yeah, but uh, so I mean, it shows off the power of that maneuverability off BB-8, even if you do lose a regeneration. I think it's. I actually think it's a worthwhile trade-off when you consider the points and the the things it frees up, like. That for those three actions a turn were really critical because there were the turns where I would reveal a green, take my barrel roll, take my boost from push the limit, clear the stress immediately and still have a focus up and be in entirely bizarre positions. Yeah, all right, guys. So, so I mean, in summary, what, what are your thoughts on the list? Is there anything you want to change? How did you feel about them overall? Well, for me, I like to end, like, post-game, I like to start analysing what I did, what my opponent did, and especially aim to take from it something I need to work on moving forward. The biggest thing for me here is Arc Dodgers. They're my nightmare, I hate them, I gripe about them, but all that being said, they're not going anywhere, so I've got to find a way to beat them. Towards this goal, with Swarms, one tool you have is your numbers. So your numbers lead to blocking, as I've said before. And the fact that I couldn't get effective blocks off on Poe Dameron uh, speaks to me that I need to work on this more. So I'm going to aim to really break it down and sit down like out of game and just go, an arc dodging vessel, where can it end up? Where is it most likely to end up? That mm. kind of thing. And also look at ways that I can manoeuvre a swarm to block and also apply uh, offence to the ace on blocking. Yeah, I mean, I know I've, I've complained about Swintir before, but I mean, it's it can be a tough game to play trying to predict where they're moving to because, I mean, they do have a finite number of green moves. So if you put a ship here, odds are that's where they want to end up and then you can sort of play around with trying to set up your arcs around that. I guess with this particular build of Poe, it's a little bit different though. Uh, yeah, it's, it's really tough to predict because with a regular ace, it's green move, boost barrel roll or green move barrel roll boost very obvious yeah which gives me or gives the person wanting to block them a set leaving point like they're always going to move from where they are to a with, certain spot to a certain spot but with podamaran and bb8 i can either when i reveal my green maneuver i can just take my green maneuver then boost i can barrel roll then push the limit and boost then take my maneuver I can barrel roll, take my maneuver, then boost. So there is like a ton of different places that I can end up that are really hard to block. Or if let's say I'm really smart and I have, um, you know, preempted all of those things which you're going to do after you do your barrel roll, you can just choose to not. Yeah. And then there's a whole bunch of other arcs that I have to deal with. Provokingly, a barrel roll puts you, I believe it's like 
a little bit more than a ship's length out from where you were before. And a ship's length, a ship's length is what I'm using to block other ships. Yeah, it's, it's really solid. And the best part is like, if you're trying to like, if you're really focused on these blocks and like, how can I stop his barrel roll and his green maneuver here and stuff. And then they go, oh, 4K turn really tough like there's there's so many different angles that are happening here that it's like it's 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 actually mind-boggling you can't work it out in the space of a turn yeah and and the other thing is if you do pull off that miracle block on Suntier fell late game and he doesn't have that focus he doesn't have that evade then he's a sitting duck with poe dameron if you can get the barrel roll you can take that focus and even if you end up bumping he's still sitting on a focus yeah and then he has pose ability and you know in this particular build there's integrated astromech as well. So in the worst case scenario and you get like a terrible crit, you're just like, uh, see you BB-8. Yeah. Well, I've spoken about how I'm going to reflect on our game. Um, what do you think you're going to work on moving forward? Oh, uh, well, there's this whole Jake Farrell situation that I'm kind of <laughs> regretting because I basically just played a game with Kane, Farlander and Poe Dameron versus Ty Swarm. But Jake Farrell seems really interesting. Like, do you, surely you're going to give it one more try. Oh, I'm going to give it at least a few more tries and I, I really need to just sort of maybe not be as aggressive in this situation. I think I might have overestimated his survivability. Yeah, the Lone Wolf, like I've, I've played around with the idea of using Lone Wolf with various other um, uh, units. And yeah, it gives you this feeling that you should have them running off by themselves, but that isn't always the best thing. So yeah, it, maybe, it strikes... maybe back to the drawing board and give it another go. Um, the other thing that I was a little frustrated about is I, I might not have necessarily killed the right targets in the right order. Like... Yeah, taking off the the Obsidian Squadron pilots, is it? Off the board to get rid of the crack shots is, is pretty great. But, like, I left Omega Leader alive for, like, two turns more than I probably should have. So I'm still working on my, my target prioritization. So that's something to work on going forward. Uh, I feel like final notes on that. Tie Swarm is interesting in that because the um, relative values are kind of close, you don't suffer as heavily from that. That's like, true. Just, kill whatever you get and you're hurting them plenty yeah I, I just i guess like i have this like sort of fear in my head where i'm like oh i probably didn't kill the right target this game what if i do that again in another game or another game and i keep applying it to more situations than just this particular one so it's a skill to work on yeah but i mean and in this particular list like you say there are definitely higher value pieces like you can't let omega leader live until the last piece on the board like, yeah and you probably want to kill how runner before most of the rest of the ties because she's giving out these re-rolls and she's generating value yeah, over crazy. time crazy value over time especially if you can put that value onto your omega leader overall i guess the target prioritization is a bigger issue with this than with 90 percent of the cookie cutter crack swarms you're going to see yeah. and it was definitely probably the highest factor in determining who won this game yeah so moving forward to the next matchup we had chris's bump master list versus another list of jacobs which uh, was i i went back to my roots as i said at the start of the podcast uh I was playing a Palpmobile, and instead of doing this newfangled triple ace crap, I went back and I, I flew I flew a Sunter and a Vader. Uh, slightly different to sort of the normal Sunter and Vader you'd see. Uh, so normally the, the Vader will be with veteran instincts, and the Sunter will have a stealth device, and it always ended about 99 points. I shaved the veteran instincts, I got rid of the stealth device, and I freed up some extra points, and so I, I ended up with a, a Predator on Darth Vader instead of veteran instincts for a bit more killing power. And my Suntifel had a targeting computer, so he has just one more action to take advantage of with his, his regular push-the-limit build. Yeah, so that, that was a really, you know, slightly different take on a, a well-established archetype, but I think the changes made for some interesting interactions during the game. It was, it was certainly a very sort of conservative list and sort of classic 
classic tier one bullshit to play against Chris's spicy list. Um, so what considerations did you have as you set up for the game, like moving into it, deployment-wise, etc.? What were you looking to do? Uh, so at this point, I hadn't seen Chris play this list at all, and I was, I was, I knew he was really hyped about this, this sweet blocking jump master. So I wanted to make sure I didn't end up in a situation where my aces just got sort of feedback arrayed and anti-pursuit lasered out of the game. Yeah, because the whole point of that bump master is to try to limit their options, bump their aces, you know, give them some early damage, try to feedback and get some free hits on them while the rest of your ships, the Z95s and the TLT on the uh, the Y-Wing can pick them apart. Yeah, I, I definitely have a, a healthy respect bordering on fear for TLTs. Like, they have a real consistency... That means they're just constantly putting out numbers and you have to keep rolling well on your green dice to get through it. And so, you know, I really wanted to sort of prioritize the Y-Wing first and then take out the Jump Master. And then Z95s really, they die very fast to aces. Cool. So um, what did deployment look like? Yeah, so for me, I had down the right-hand side of the board from my perspective was that classic pinwheel formation with the Z95s and then Cavill sitting in the back row of that pinwheel. And then the jump master sitting just in front of them uh, to hopefully be able to cut in front and get the block on which the Z95s will be able to capitalize on. Um, my lambda was sort of uh, off to one side away from like opposite sort of area from his pinwheel. And it sort of set itself up in a lane where it could fly straight down and sort of joust at the enemy. While my aces were a bit off by themselves in their own sort of mini pinwheel formation, the two of them together. Yeah, but it wasn't a, the classic castling formation you quite often see out of these... Palpmobile list. Was there a reason you didn't go for the, the castling bump? Uh, in this particular case, you have the superior joust, and I didn't want to lock myself into a corner where you can bring your full firepower onto me. I wanted to try and sort of initially break up your formation and sort of separate you early. So in the early game, yeah. essentially what happened was I was hoping to use the bump master to throw it out there and gum up the aces maneuvers and get those Z95s in there to, to pounce on them when they you know, didn't have their evades, didn't have their focus up. Unfortunately for, for Chris, I was a bit wise to his bumping shenanigans and so he took a really aggressive like charge forward with his, uh, with his jump master where my aces could conceivably turn into meters force and I instead gunned it with a five straight and flew off straight past it, didn't even care. Yeah, so what that meant was then I then had to kind of reform the rest of my rest of my maneuvers to try to turn around because now his aces are way off on their own on the other side of the board. And you still had a lambda bearing down on you, and those three red dice, you know, they get some work done. Yeah, they add up. Uh, so the early game sort of wasn't marked by the, the the move from early game to mid game wasn't really marked by anything dying. It was sort of marked by a breaking of formation because mm. at this point my. Suntia fell and my Vader have looped back around and they're sort of staring down all of your forces and you started sort of splitting up due to a couple of unfortunate bumps and an asteroid here or there and your jump master is staring down my lambda in the middle of the board sort of away from the rest of the conflict. Yeah. At this point, uh, I fly my Suntia fell and my Vader straight past your forces with Vader K-turning back to look at you and my Suntia instead taking the safe green move so he could stack a bunch of tokens. Yeah, Suntia wanted to get the heck out of there because... Not having had any clean shots, I've got about four target locks stacked up on him now. That is correct. You, your jump master and your all three Z95s all have target locks on Suntir. Yeah, so Suntir just wanted to get the hell out of there because that many dice with modifications, you're going to sneak some damage through at some point. Yeah, and so some shooting happened here and stuff, and then the most unfortunate thing happens. The sweetest thing happened. I managed to use the bump master, and having predicted that Vader, I knew more or less where he wanted to end up. 
So I deliberately put one of my Z95s in front of the bump master who did a one forward and bumped the back of my Z95, which then meant that Vader ended up careening straight into my bump master. Yeah, and uh, I don't believe I took a damage from anti-pursuit lasers, but I certainly took a damage during the combat phase when you uh, feedback arrayed me. Yeah, exactly. And having that feedback array turns out to be super good against those really evasive aces because that's, that's what it's there for. I mean, you're not going to use it to, you know, take one shield off of a Millennium Falcon, but if you can get an automatic damage through, especially on a shot where, you know, you're not shooting them anyway because they're in base contact with you. And then the unfortunate happened again and I got feedback arrayed for a second turn in a row. Yep, so at the cost of now having my movement predetermined for one turn, I've managed to actually do a reasonable amount of damage to Vader. So unfortunately, I'd kind of been prioritizing Sunta because he is a huge pain in the late game. He's probably more maneuverable than Vader, but slightly lower damage output, but I still wanted Sunta down first. So by this point, I've got to do the unfortunate and kind of switch my game plan and start trying to put the, you know, the final blow on Vader. Yeah, at this point, I feel it's like worth illustrating how in uh, Jacob and Mai's game, we spoke about target prioritization pre-game. The ace, the Imperial Aces especially, do this weird thing where it's really hard to figure out which ace you need to kill first. And also, I definitely feel there's this thing where the value of the aces changes depending on how they're manoeuvred within game. The other thing you also have to deal with is there's this temptation to try and take out the Lambda carrying Palpatine because every turn that passes that you get to change a die roll with Palpatine, you're getting an advantage in the game. And the more of those dies you change, the, you know, the more that, uh, that eight-point upgrade pays for itself. So you either have to deal with the Lambda to try and get Palpatine out early because after a certain point, it doesn't matter. You've gotten, you know, he's gotten enough out of it. Then you also have these aces who do this weird juggle where one ace will go in and engage with you and you're engaging with it. And when things start looking grim, it, it flies off and the other ace engages with you and you're like, oh, do I keep going or do I switch targets? And that's a really tough question to answer. Yeah, that's, that's like my constant struggle because, you know, it's really easy to take out that lambda if you just focus it down and you can get rid of Palpatine and that's great. But for those two turns or whatever that you're trying to focus down the lambda, Sunter and Vader are just like running a train all up and down your list. Yeah. Um, so at this point, uh, we sort of break off from the initial engagement and your Zeds end up sort of in a weird spot on the other side of the board. And for some really odd reason, my Lambda has bumped into your jump master up in like the far corner and Suntir is sort of hanging out over there as well. And Vader is eagerly hunting Cavill on the complete opposite side of the board to everyone else. Yeah. Um, yeah, these, um unpredicted messes of board state to me at least tends to signal like you're probably reaching the late game phase of the um the the, the combat yeah and this is about where we switch into the, the the end of the game at this point the lambda is sort of not doing anything for the rest of the game it's flying around the edge of the board desperately trying not to fly off it the eternal lament of every lambda pilot the maneuver dial yeah uh Vader, unfortunately, here takes some weird moves that lead it over asteroids and it ends up getting blown up and Vader is gone. But Sunter is still basically untouched. I think he's taken one damage card, which didn't really worry me because it's not like I lost a stealth device or anything. Yeah, exactly. In this game, that, that ended up not being even relevant. And so my Cavill's dead, your Vader's dead, and I'm down to a handful of Zeds against Sunter. And you still had your contracted scout. He was still flying around. Yeah, but to be fair, that, uh, that two dice... Two dice turrets not going to do a heck of a lot against a uh, 
token stacking center. Yeah, and sort of the game now sort of ends at a point where the Lambda finally turns back around and opens up fire on the scout at the same time that Sunti does, and the scout's gone. Then the next turn, a Z95 dies, and it's about here that we sort of call it quits. Yeah, to be fair, it was probably pretty much done when I was down to no cavil and starting to chip away at my scouts and my Zs because Z95s really struggle against Sunta. They don't have a great dial. I mean, it's it's great for if you want to fly straight at your opponent and shoot them in the face. But when you're talking about a barrel rolling, boosting, you know, disgusting Sunta who's stacking evade, stacking focus, he gets really tough to take down. And then when he's got those target locks as well from that targeting computer, he can pretty much burst down a... Uh, a Z in just one or two rounds, I feel. It's really great because you get to do this thing where you boost into range one, push the limit to take a target lock, get your free focus, and you're rolling four red dice with rerolls and focus. It's really sweet. Yeah, and you can do that when you're in a position not to be worried about return fire because you just fly around until you line up that perfect attack vector. Yep, Suntifel really rewards a pilot with patience. Patience and just the incredible will to drive your opponents insane. Yeah, I've done that a few times. Yeah. Anyway, Chris, what, what were your, your sort of your thoughts on your list once the game had wrapped up? Um, yeah, so I'm I'm interested to keep messing around with the Bumpmaster. Um, Intelligence Agent is really, really useful against those aces just to give you, like we talked about before, if you know that first maneuver they're going to take, it gives you a much better handle on where they could end up. Uh, it was a bit odd because most of the time when you uh, used your intelligence agent and peeked at my dials, you sort of had this really sad look on your face. Yeah, it's that, that dawning realisation of, fuck, I've lined up all of my arcs in literally the exact opposite direction to the one that he ended up choosing. Yeah, I think the intelligence agent worked really well for me as a fear <laughs> tactic. Yeah, I think I'm going to rename it the propaganda agent. <laughs> Fuckers. But um, Z95, still, still doing the job. They just kick out damage. They can act as blockers. They... They're just more bodies on the board. For a very low low price. Yep. Cavill, I'm not completely sold on. Um, I really did feel the the lack of that astromech. The unhinged astromech is such a good piece to give you more maneuverability. So I feel like the one point for that is probably going to be the very first change he gets made to that list. Yeah, I, I, there was a period of time when Vader was still on the board where he just hugged range one of Cavill and he was behind Cavill and Cavill couldn't TLT him. And Kavil couldn't really take those big three moves to get away. Mm. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So that that classic Donut of Doom problem, you feel it a lot more against those aces than you would against certain other pieces. You know, maybe Poe Dameron, or not Jacob's build, but the classic Poe Dameron with just a boost action is not quite as able to hug you in range one. But I mean, that, that's Sunter Invader's specialty. That's just what they do. So having a slightly more open dial to take those big moves could have really helped out in that sort of late game ace hunting, I think. Uh, what about your list, Jacob? How, how do you feel about those little changes you've made to the ace loadout? Uh, I, was, I was really, really happy with targeting computer on Suntier. It's not something that you use in the early game. Like you're not taking time off from your regular plan to throw out target locks. But when you switch gears into the late game and you go from being the arc dodger to the ship hunter, really, really paid for itself. But I mean, you say that, but isn't a stealth device what you have to guarantee that he gets to the late game? Because uh, without it, he's a little bit easy to take down. Uh, in my opinion, uh, you should be arc dodging with Suntir well enough that you shouldn't be worried about needing an extra die to roll. There was a turn where you shot at me with a four dice TLT turret from Cavill and scored four hits, and I dodged them all. And then you got three hits on the next roll, and I dodged them all without stealth device. Wasn't obstructed, I didn't get any bonus dice... That was just with carefully using evades, focuses, and palpatines. Stealth device seems a bit redundant at that point. Yeah, that's fair enough. 
So what about the overall play styles? Like, what do you think could have been done differently, either from my side, from your side, to to change the outcome of that game? Because I, I feel like some of my positioning with the bump master was still off. I mean, I'm still getting my head around that really insane movement dial, barrel rolling a big ship. Like, there's a lot to consider there with trying to position the bump master optimally to mess with your opponent's plan. Uh, I, I would say that, like, in the very early game when you made that aggressive push forward with the jump master, I'm not sure you considered that I could take any maneuver other than a two-turn because mm. that was really the only thing that got blocked off. And by moving it that far forward... You know, it's maneuver dial is great, but it's not going to be able to turn around and be behind where it is now for a couple of turns. And so I had the ability to very easily now be behind your blocker. Mm. Yep, fair enough. Uh, in terms of in terms of your play, uh, I mean, you got Sunta there to the late game. You have Vader doing his thing. The advanced targeting computer just spitting out damage. With the Lambda, I mean, you keep saying you just have it doing laps around the edge of the board. Do you still feel like you get the value off that ship, the 29 points, if it's not taking part in a joust or not doing out damage? Uh, it, did, it did take part in the initial joust and it knocked some shields off a few things and it came back in the late game and just started chewing stuff up. It's, it's really like you're paying 29 points for a Palpatine that sometimes gets to shoot, which is more than fine in the list because the other two ships carry it so well. Yeah, and I definitely feel with those um, Palpmobile ace-style lists, they have such, a, if you will, fluid formation that they don't mind taking turns to reset and re um, realign their jousting lanes um, and you can definitely have as you mentioned before one element generally an ace committing itself um, and giving the other elements time to reset and get their lines lined up and, and the lambda benefits from that very heavily yeah and there are plenty of turns where i will run my sun completely away from everyone facing the complete wrong direction and be like oh it's got two focuses and evade and that's more than fine because I know that in a couple of turns' time, I'm going to be able to swing around and do something with it. And every turn that we get closer to you having less ships on the board and me getting my aces to that that latest stage is like, that's a big plus. Yeah, I mean, it feels like the play style that you want to embody when you're playing that list is just patience, right? You want to fly around and do things until my formation breaks apart, until I bump and lose a bunch of actions, until I don't have good options for my maneuver dials. Yeah, and it's 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 uh, this sort of ace list, especially with Suntir, really rewards sort of a, a really good mathematical play. Like, you need to know what the odds are on if you have a focus and an evade or two focus and an evade on surviving X number of attacks. You need to know when you can spend that focus token on attacking. And it's all this stuff that really, it just comes down to, can you do the math on the probabilities here and ensure that your ace always survives? Yeah, alongside the uh, mathematical elements you use to uh, apply your aces to the enemy, I really feel there's this, they, they leverage um, pressure, if you will, really well. Like, I, I, the few times I've run Imperial Aces, I know that I've been thinking about, like, what's going to happen the next turn and the turn after that a lot more heavily than I do with Jousting Lists. Jousting Lists, I'm all about setting up an optimum way of approaching my enemy. It's a much more, um, like macro macro way of viewing the um, battlefield whereas um imperial aces want to break it down to all those little things and the repercussions of their movement yeah um so like one of the, the things i was saying earlier about like puzzles uh when you're playing an imperial ace list you're asking your opponent to deal with you because you know that at some point you're going to get shots on them and kill them but in the meantime they need to be the ones putting damage on you and taking you off the board other lists don't necessarily do that quite as well. Like other lists are very easy to deal with. Whereas Imperial Aces are asking, you know, the opponent also has to, you know, 
understand a lot about what the Imperial Ace player is doing and how they can deal with what they're doing. Yeah, so with a list like mine, the, the only real puzzle element, I feel, is kind of the bump master. It's, can you get around this? Can you deal with how it changes your flight? Can you deal with how it changes the formation? Because people have kind of, they've seen the, the TLT a lot. They've seen the little mini jousting swarm sort of thing going on. So the only new element to the puzzle is the bump master. So that's, that's the bit where I think I need to really up my positioning. One of the other things you can do, if, if your list itself is not adding to the puzzle, you can try odd asteroid placement, which means you know the other person has to uh, like ask, what lanes can I take? You can try interesting deployments so the opponent might be like, I don't know how to deal with this. You have all these options throughout the game from list building through to how you fly to challenge your opponent to make mistakes. Forward onto uh, future plans for the next couple of weeks before we uh, meet back again. Anyone got any uh, anything they'd like to do over the next couple of weeks? Yeah, so as aforementioned, I'm going to work on strategizing ways to um, deal with aces. I think that this might be an excellent opportunity for you to try flying some arc dodging aces. Know thy enemy. That's an excellent point. So I'll probably put that into it. I will my, I'll make it twofold. I will attempt to find ways to fly my current Imperial Swarm to deal with aces and also knock together a spicy Ooh. little ace brew of myself. I hear you've uh, stolen a word from Jalapeno Hudson there. <laughs> I have, I have. Jalapeno Hudson, notorious for his use of spice, now has a pseudonym to go along with it. And that's what I'm going to be working on moving forward. Uh, I'm going to be working on making my vocabulary more extensive, apparently. But uh, in terms of X-Wing-related content... What I really want to do is uh, I want to work on those puzzles. Like we said, I want to work on my placement of those those jump masters, work on my blocks, work on my formations in a way that throws out things for my opponents to deal with rather than just rather than just flying down their throat and trying to joust them. I want to work on maybe including more of those arc dodging aces or about putting together a weird formation. I was just about to say you need to run more aces. All y'all need more aces. All right. Well, what about you, Captain Ace? What's, what's your... Uh, New oh, week's resolution. I am stepping back away from my uh, my aces that I love so much. And I, I have recently acquired myself a ghost. I got to play a couple of games with it today. And I, I really liked what I was tasting. And I'm, I'm eager to get more sort of big ships that aren't a lambda down on the board. So the ghost, like from what I've seen so far, is actually really, really cool. I've got some some interesting Millennium Falcon ghost lists that I really want to try out. So that's probably what I'm going to be doing for the next couple of weeks. Going, going to fly some uh, some big ships, the old the pancakes and the waffle lines and stuff. Yeah, all of them have to have engine upgrade. It's it's really required. Yeah, right. So I feel in synopsis, we're all going to try something new. Yeah, as a means of bettering ourselves. Yeah, yeah we're going to step into each other's clothes. Indeed. Yeah. All right. Fair enough. So let's uh, let's wrap it up there. So thanks so much for tuning in, guys. We'll catch you in a couple of weeks. All right. Cheers, guys. Bye. Um, so who took the first turn? Uh, I believe I had the initiative in this game. Yep. So in the uh, early turns of the game, as we like to call it, the um, beginning phase. Um, wow, I just thought, just cut it's this good. bit out. It's fine. Um, how did the... Hang on. What do we call them? What are the, t what are the phases of a game? Early game, early mid game, game, late game? You had yeah. a stroke? <laughs> <laughs> I just... You went from like... So in the early beginning phases, what do you call this? 